architectural representation slips into a kind of more sociological realm, anthropological realm, but at the same time tests the edges of our narrative capacities and ways of making visible those stories. Welcome to Tete-a-Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's episode features Amelyn Ung, who is a 2019 to 2021 Wortham Fellow at Rice University. Amelyn is an Australian architect, writer, and cartoonist whose work seeks to expand discourse on architectural images in historical, material, and humorous registers. This work has been featured on Avery Shorts, Volume, Critical Planning Journal, Platt, and Eflux Architecture, among others. We're excited to share a conversation with Emmeline about how designers can learn from stay-at-home experiences during the pandemic, digitally representing environmental phenomena, and more. Let's dive in. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lindsay. I wanted to talk about the Stay at Home Stress Project. So to give a bit of background, this is a project that surveyed the lockdown experiences of 16 households in Houston's Fifth Ward, identifying which home stressors could be alleviated through spatial reorganization and which stressors may persist or even worsen beyond the period of the COVID-19 pandemic. So the study was aimed at particularly vulnerable segments of the population where there could be intersecting issues from living below the poverty level, having less access to community amenities, living in older structures on average, and being located in more flood-prone areas of the city. How can the spatial survey uniquely identify problems in the home that other data collection methods might not be able to? And what did you think were the benefits of using this kind of method for the research in this case? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the key is in the format, a spatial survey. Most surveys that sociologists use and even maps that are at the neighborhood level are quantitative more than qualitative, and they tend to preference the broader trend over the individual narrative, the voice. And so I think what this survey was trying to do with 16 families being a manageable sample size was to really speak with families who experienced lived spatial experiences under the lockdown and instead of produce written accounts or bar charts or line graphs. It was about trying to draw them in plan. It was a incredibly intimate discussion about their daily routines and workarounds, uh, spatial limitations, environmental conditions in the home that would never have been uncovered in a map or a statement about a property. So I think the spatial survey as a methodology, as a form of narrative making, is something I was trying to pursue with my team. Carrie Lee and Carolyn Francis from Rice Architecture really helped me out with a lot of the drawings. They were a fantastic team to brainstorm these critical factors. I actually put together these factors with my partner, Gabrielle Vergara, who works with social nonprofits in New York City. And this was one way for us to start unpacking what was happening around us in the pandemic, trying to make sense of the inequalities that shape the built environment and how the built environment shapes inequalities in the home. So I think that's how it started. And we were really trying to figure out how to represent that in a graphical, spatial way. Can you just briefly maybe summarize what the research findings were? Like, what was the most surprising thing about these surveys? 
Right. So across the 16, and by no means is 16 a depiction of the entire neighborhood, but many residents talked about heat stress in their own homes as a particularly difficult issue. They talked about how weatherproofing issues and even hurricane damaged homes that were not repaired, that hadn't been repaired by their landlord or inadequate funds and things like that began to impact the way they could use the home under COVID circumstances. The surprising yet not so surprising thing about the lockdown was the myth of working and studying from home. That transition was actually incredibly difficult for many families. Half of the families I interviewed did not have internet access or had poor internet access. And that may not seem like a spatial thing, but when there are, for example, four or five children in the space of a small home at different age levels trying to study for school while a parent was an essential worker. And there were many layers, I think, that emerged from this myth of being able to work and study from home that when we listened to the stories and then drew them out in the plan, began to compound in the same space. Another myth that I think was interesting and surprising to me was that a high overcrowding score, like a person's per room calculation, which is usually seen as a decreased quality of life, that may not automatically always correlate with stress. It has for many families, but for example, Charlie, someone we interviewed who had a high persons per room rating, they enjoyed and are used to each other's proximity. And in fact, it was more secure to have his children really immediate. You know, if I don't hear any noise from my kids, something's wrong and things like that. And there's also the question of larger kinship structures that have higher density in homes that are usually considered to be so-called less desirable under COVID circumstances. But some of these larger extended family households we talked to were incredibly resilient in the way they supported each other within the sphere of the home when they had to social distance from others. They used larger rooms and helped each other out with groceries, childcare. And so the kind of space of the home wrestling with that flexibility, but also uncovering these myths that we tend to associate with what is good for a lockdown, what is good for a pandemic surprised me. I think another thing that struck me was that many families were living with what designers would not consider habitable or at the level of occupancy which I think is something we should also think through in our own assumptions about habitability, but even kind of very basic needs like sealing the envelope. There were some families living with unsealed windows that were self-repaired because of maintenance and things like that from landlords, badly hurricane damaged walls, large holes in ceilings, which led to leaks and pests and all the things that basically compounded when you have a pandemic and have to stay at home all the time. And even self-repairs that were enacted throughout the home to mitigate heat stress, like foil and windows and kind of simple moments like that or covering floors that were in disrepair, I think really speaks to a kind of workaround in the most difficult of circumstances for such a long duration. When you're talking about things like workarounds or self-repairs, like that's not necessarily an operation that an architect is going to always have a role in. And I'm wondering, what do you think the agency of the architect is to kind of deal with these existing structures where people might not have the resources to kind of seek out other solutions, like having an architect help redesign their envelope or replace all their windows? Like what can we do or how can we get better involved in dealing with these things? Just because we can't always be focused on new construction, we have to deal with these existing buildings already. Right, right. No, that's a fantastic question. And I think as architects, firstly, it's maybe expanding our idea of architectural services in the narrow sense. We usually think of the architecturally designed house as something of quote unquote good taste. 
you know, novel forms, technological experimentation, expensive finishes for high paying clients and so on. But I think in a broader public sense of good quality housing and listening closely to these workarounds and spaces of resilience, you know, the space of the porch, the porch emerged as a key space for families without air conditioning at home or families with many children where they had some degree of separation without leaving the property, things like that, that I think the architect can lean into and think about that typology. And perhaps in future community home building projects, uh, architects can partner with organizations like we partnered with the Center for Urban Transformation to think through with residents how their existing housing circumstances are and what potential future housing circumstances might be new or existing. I think expanding the question of what we do, whether we can consider a clever retrofit or renovation as just an important project as a new build, as you were saying, ways in which backyards can be shared, ways in which generous storage pochet can alleviate spatial stresses inside a house. I think those are all in the realm of the architect in some way. And I think it's really kind of expanding the notions of what it is that we care about as a designer. One great example that Rice is already doing in Construct is attending to the ADU typology. I feel like that kind of typology is incredibly useful for a number of houses and residents I spoke to. I thought about that typology quite a lot. And I think that's a space of density without retreat questioning who has access to immediate neighborhood amenities, walkable amenities, almost open plans that can be more or less flexible depending on the circumstance. I think maybe part of it is that in new construction, since a lot of construction or development occurs without architects, maybe the idea is that just more architects need to become developers and maybe have thoughts on that idea. But I'm wondering how we can get these kind of flexible adaptive organizational strategies into homes, just thinking about the actual percentage of homes that are built and designed by architects. I think it's less about architects becoming developers in order to shape our own future, right? The, like taking the built environment literally into our own hands. There is an intermediate strategy. I think that architects can partner with community organizations as clients, as opposed to just the private sector. And this might involve applying for funding to produce a set of drawings, plans, ideas, strategies for a certain neighborhood, thinking with local organizations on the ground who have already done this work with community, with residents. And like the Fifth Ward CRC, for example, is also a community home builder and they are thinking about housing and built fabric. So if we could shift our gaze as to who the client is, that would change greatly the landscape of what gets built, even though it may not be branded as like, quote unquote, an architecturally designed home as a unique object. I think, for example, reinventing a typology a housing typology that could better serve essential workers, could rethink multiple temporalities of dwelling within the same roof, things like that play into the realms of what we can do. I think another thing we could think about is a kind of architect as funding strategist or uh, architect that is savvy with temporalities of construction, of repair, of maintenance. And maybe there is a way for design to work at the scale or budget of flood relief funds. Uh, after a storm, families apply for these funds and you know where is design in that often very rapid spectrum of rebuilding or 
renovating. I think there is a critical capacity for designers to act in a space that warrants new thinking as opposed to just building more of the same, which quite often is the developer's domain. So yeah, that's my two cents on architect as not developer. Yeah, I think that's great. I guess I just said developer because it is what's there. So it's like, Mm -hmm. we have to have people that are telling us that there's other alternatives and then also seeking other alternatives rather than just reinventing what's already existing. But I will tell you that there are architects who have become developers, social enterprises that are thinking about collectivity and larger kinship structures in different ways. Zurich collectives where architects are actively involved. There's Baugruppen in Germany and a range of other types of development that may not look like what we consider development today to be incredibly progressive and well within our scope of design. So maybe to pivot to another area of your research, could you just talk a little bit on the premise of Screen Space, which was your installation for Rice University? The installation that nobody saw because of the COVID break. Yes. Um, Yeah. So it was an interesting pivot of a project. It was originally meant to be a performance in the Sky Space, which is that James Terrell pavilion on Rice campus. I saw that on the first day I arrived in Houston and continued to think about it in the way that a traditional architect might approach nature, how the enlightenment optic of the sky, of an ideal nature manifests itself in something like the sky space. It's a perfect symmetry. The sky space never has bad weather in it. And the more I thought about this relationship between image and ecology, you know, skies, screens, shelters, I started to feel the need to um, performatively intervene perhaps with some humor the original idea was to sew a large blackout fabric that masked the opening of the sky space temporarily so that we could host a screening of Houston's past hurricanes but what then happened was that I discovered that Jury Hall at Rice Architecture was the same size as the Torellian void and so that became the test site for this large fabric green space, which really was a kind of temporary weather watching pavilion in the end to think about how the view from above is not naked eye gaze. It's a technologically mediated view. It's a multiple view, Um, satellite imagery, mapping, infrared, are layers of seeing, ways of seeing in which we largely experience weather and climate and how we start to conflate that with real space. That was really where I was getting at with this projection installation. Since you kind of brought it up that there were limitations on the number of people who could see it in its final form, have you thought about how the limited in-person experience kind of feeds into your inquiries on the shifting role of architectural media and representation? Or have you had any thoughts about how this could kind of be translated through digital representation to reach a wider audience. Yeah. So the irony of the pavilion was that while it was incredibly mediated, it was also supposed to be a collective experience. So bringing together discussions of weather and climate under the same roof green space. And, you know, the idea with having so many 16 by 9 aspect ratio screens sewn together was that perhaps we could all begin to project different versions of the sky up onto the space and then have a collective discussion about what it means to think about weather and climate collapse together in Houston context. That was of course, undermined to some extent by COVID. But I think there was a kind of intention to let it be an event 
have it experienced, but also, you know, the video, the five channel satellite video of different hurricanes would be something that could potentially be erected somewhere else or added to as storms accrue, I suppose. But I didn't quite think about it so much as purely digital space, but I really wanted to collapse that realm of reality and representation. So the fact that they're made of baggy fabric, Mm -hmm. the ceiling is a kind of register of gravity. It's indoors and that is usually how weather is experienced and usually how weather is monitored. Uh, it's kind of 24-hour space of projection. And so entering into something like that, I think, would have taken us out of the chair, the screen, into another space that we could actually inhabit. In the stay-at-home stress surveys, there's direct evidence of environmental factors and kind of their effects on at-home quality of life. And then this ties into a little bit screen spaces commentary on Houston's imperfect nature. I guess I'm just wondering how you see the different research interests tying together, if at all. Right. What I tend to bring to new projects, whether planned or unplanned, is a narrative approach, a way of thinking about architectural representation and formats as a kind of way to tell a narrative. You know, full disclosure, I was a cartoonist before I was an architect. And so the question of media, low res or high res, has always been an interest in narrative. And I think there's a way in which, for example, architectural representation could uncover that which is not usually represented valued in the designer's consciousness. For example, in the stay-at-home stress project, using the plan as a kind of storytelling device embedded with non-generic entourage that spoke to a real experience. In that way, architectural representation slips into a kind of more sociological realm, anthropological realm, but at the same time tests the edges of our narrative capacities and ways of making visible those stories. I think on the other hand, the screen space was a kind of narrative about nature and about architectural approaches to nature that may not be readily discussed in a kind of design context. The screen space project was, you know, about how something like fabric could construct a ceiling and that could begin discussions around the politics of the weather report. Weather is a space, the climate is also a space, yet their temporalities are radically different. And what happens when we start to push back on these ideas around weather and and nature? The way I work is trying to push back on existing narratives, idealized narratives about space and how we can think more equitably, think more specifically rather than universally about space and yeah embed more voices into that notion of space. I think that ties in with the uneven runoff project. You can explain it further. I mean I think just reading into that at least what I kind of know about Houston's context of flooding and just the title even I think could be provocative in multiple ways. There's this idea that almost all of Houston is really subject to flooding in some way, shape, or form just because of all the bayous and waterways and watersheds, but in the sense that both some areas are going to flood more than others just because of how things have been graded and the proximity of different areas to freeways that are elevated that can kind of direct water into different places. And then just thinking about runoff, not necessarily in the sense of water, but also maybe in the aftermath of storms. Like you pointed out with the stay-at-home stress survey are very separated across lines of both race and class. So I think that could be just interesting for you to talk a little bit more about. Yeah, so the uneven runoff 
project is not a design project. It's a mapping research project, and it's become a kind of community engagement project with Texas Health and Environment Alliance, SIA. And they work on issues of toxicity and flooding, which is a compounded factor in, in Harris County in Houston, where it's not just about flooding per se, but also about contamination and where those sites of contamination actually exist, often incredibly close to residential neighborhoods and the kind of sheer juxtaposition in the morphology of Harris County, where you have almost all of it in impermeable surface. And we are still in the throes of thinking through how mapping and making visible different layers that maybe have not yet come together in the same image space can begin to generate discussions in communities about the toxic sites surrounding them and how that engages with the floodplain and what concerns might that run off hold when it starts being compounded with industrial sites. And even runoff was really to look at that uneven relationship between rainwater and industrial activity, industrial hard surfaces and stormwater, be it in kind of curb and gutter or open ditch drainage. That kind of division of stormwater management in the city already presents an inequality. A lot of neighborhoods we've been looking at are primarily open ditch drainage, and that presents issues for contamination as well as the ability for it to discharge or retain water during a flood. You know, I think there are also broader issues we can talk about that geography of industrial property, that geography of flood infrastructure on the surface. The project is not like a hydrology modeling project. We don't have that expertise. And there are lots of research groups at Rice that are doing incredible work about working out where water goes and flows. But I think this one was really to uncover the juxtapositions and proximities to vulnerable neighborhoods and how environmental health and environmental justice is something that's also spatial and geographic. So hopefully we'll have something to show in a few months. Yeah, that's great. I think a lot of us, given it's Houston, we kind of know it's proximity to industry and like oil and its history as being kind of like the energy city. I think there's still a lot of things that we're not really always aware of in terms of both the chemical sites and runoff, but also how those have a kind of spatial organization and who really is subject to the often quite negative effects of those situations. Right. And actually, just to build on that, we've been looking at the San Jacinto River, for example, and the land use along the river, which is a prime site for development. At the same time, it's complicated by a Superfund site and other industrial toxic release inventory sites and neighborhoods that experience the runoff that comes from those sites. So I think by thinking as an architect or a geographer or as an urbanist, thinking about the way land use is being ascribed along a water body or along a floodplain and how that might contradict the ways in which we think about recreation or safe spaces for outdoor play for children when they are so proximate to industrial sites somehow in the city of no zoning. I suppose that factor is eluded from the parks and recreation planning, I suppose. But Mm -hmm. I think there's just a confluence of factors that makes Houston an incredibly interesting and intense place of research for flooding related and environmental justice related questions. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the land use. I mean, that's one of the things that I always think when I'm on the very minimal bayou trails is that I feel like it's such a missed opportunity to develop community amenities on these sites. But yeah, there's a water treatment plant over there. There's this over there. And I think it contradicts definitely what you were saying about recreation and bodies of water. Yeah. I think it makes us think 
twice about the land use designation that is handed to us as designers, perhaps, to think through that site's history and potential futures before assuming a, a condition for the design of a building. I think now there's also a lot of discussions around subtraction and retreat and ways of managing that line that is also contradictory, but also a kind of much needed discussion between community organizations and scholars, academics, researchers designers to think about that timescale of the floodplain and those communities have, you know, lived there all their lives. You know, how do we think about just transition through design additive or subtractive in ways that are really taking into consideration those voices of those who live there. So I think that work is still to be done. And, you know, we're, we're really only scratching the surface with mapping, but I think it begins to allow non-designer voices to come into the map and to come into the layers of the image. And hopefully whoever picks it up afterwards would be able to get into those discussions around futures. So you're also working on a research project dealing with immaterial labor? So I'm currently working on a piece of writing on the instructional video as a medium in architecture, as a kind of form of upskilling of immaterial workers, i.e. designers today, where, you know, time, skill and education are bound together in this question of labor. And when it becomes immaterial, when it's all clicks, drags and pans and zooms, we don't tend to think of our work as a kind of labor with mm -hmm. energy and investment attached to it. But just thinking about the software as a service economy society that we live in now, everything is a subscription, including our tools of production, right? You have to subscribe to the cloud to get Photoshop now. And as a student, you know, the kind of question of access to these tools are not so much a question, but once you step out into a kind of more precarious space, there's always these kinds of, I wouldn't say invisible, I think they're quite tangible in, in financial terms and in kind of temporal terms. But at the same time, there's not much, I think, discussion or research surrounding the fact that immaterial labor is still labor. And so the essay kind of tries to unpack that through the trope of the instructional video, this kind of highly codified time, I guess, that is unpaid. And what that says about the incredibly precarious profession that many interns are working in, thinking about the post-COVID landscape and how one might interact and operate in the immaterial labor economy. So the essay is speculative, but it is very much grounded in urgent calls in architecture to address labor. It's kind of bound up in thinking with the architecture lobby, for example, that calling for labor justice and support within the profession. So it'll be published in DISC Journal in a few months. Well, I'll look at the DISC Journal stuff. Yeah, and I do hope the Uneven Runoff Project, which is the research grant with the HRC, the Humanities Research Center. And so what's cool is that the map layers will go back into their database of Deleuville, Houston, highways, waterways, and somehow having you know thought through the maps with local organizations already doing this work, I think makes that super abstract map layer a bit more concrete. And for us as researchers also, it's very easy to make correlations without knowing if they are really lived experiences. So yeah, it's just nice to have like a concrete plan to pass the research on to someone at the end, because I think sometimes it happens and it's like great things are produced and then disappears who, into ether. who gets to actually reap the benefits of all of that research collected right well thank you for being here today yeah super fun thanks for having me For 
more information on Amalyn Ng, please visit her website, A-M-E-L-Y-N-N-G.com, or you can find her on Instagram at Amalyn Amalyn. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review, and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.